Hi everyone, Francisco here. Just before we get started, I wanted to share something I'm really excited about. I recently launched the Story Powers Bootcamp, a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to find, craft, and tell stories that work. But it's not just an online course, because you get personalized feedback from me for all the practical activities and three hours of live coaching to work through any challenges or focus on specific projects. So it's like if you bought a cookbook, but the chef came along with it. So go to storypowers.com and click on course. All the information you need will be there. So please check it out. And if you love the show and would like to support us, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash storypowers. I drink about five coffees a day, so any support would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Story Powers Podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, keynote speaker and storytelling coach, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Matt Zon. Matt is an award-winning speaker who empowers organizations through the art of strategic storytelling, and he has catalyzed radical sales increases for over 150 companies that range from financial institutions to the health and wellness industry. In addition to his work in the private sector, Matt has worked with dozens of politicians in their media and communication strategies, including speeches and campaign messages at the local, state, and national level. Matt might also be the only person I know who goes through even more books than me, 135 last year alone. I'm not quite sure if I should congratulate him or be a little concerned. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Zahn. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. As we were discussing just before we, we got started, there's some of the things you do that no one else have spoken to yet does, um, and, and your work with, with, with politicians is one of them. But before I get into that, I wanted to just get some of the basics of your understanding of storytelling and, and the stuff you teach out, because I think it will inform that conversation a little bit better. So I've heard you share a story about the time when you played football. And, and it, when you told that story, you said something like that wisdom is about doing the basics. When it comes to storytelling, though, what are those basics? What what are the things that everybody needs to get right before anything else? Sure. Fantastic question. So to preface that question, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings of storytelling, especially when we're talking about in the business space. So a lot of business leaders that I speak with, they view storytelling as a glorified spectacle, like a Broadway play or a movie production where you need to razzle and dazzle the audience. That's not exactly what I teach. So right now, I primarily work with business leaders, CEOs and executives on how they could utilize storytelling to really inspire their staff, as well as motivate their clients to purchase more. And it's the storytelling that really connects with people on an emotional level. So to me, storytelling is really utilizing an experience that we've gone through and capturing ordinary world, new reality, and inserting a hero in the story. And my recommendation to everyone is the hero should not be you. It should be someone else or something else, but it can't be you. It could be a person, it could be a book, a strategy, a concept, but it should not be you. You're going to have a lot more power with your story 
if the hero is someone else. So I really, I challenge people to view storytelling as really capturing an experience and really connecting with someone on an emotional level and inserting a hero. So really focusing on the simplistic elements of storytelling. Okay, so that that makes complete sense to me. I think it, it will make a lot of sense to, to, to many people who listen to this podcast. But from you know, from doing some of this work myself, one thing that I also know, and at least it has been my experience, is that if you share that with someone who's completely new to, to storytelling, they, they, they will hear that and go, mm, okay, that makes sense, but I've got no idea what comes next. So, so they get that, okay, okay, fine, ordinary experiences, I don't need to razzle and dazzle, the hero shouldn't be me, but that that is probably not enough for someone to to get there and, and actually do anything with it. At least that's been my experience. People get the the, the concept of it, but the, the first step, it, they, they get stuck. Well, first, has that been your experience? And either way, is, you know, what is the next step to, to explaining this to people? Sure. I mean, a lot of people get stuck uh, with, with storytelling, for sure. So first, I mean, we do, we do think in pictures. So if I say dog, everyone listening has their own picture of what a dog is, right? So I'm thinking of my dog who is a Morky. Someone may be thinking of a German Shepherd. Someone may be thinking of a Golden Retriever. They're all dogs, but they're different pictures. And often when we share storytelling, there's all these different pictures that come up. And a lot of times it's not wrong. It's just coming from it from a different perspective. So what I challenge my clients to do is as they're in an experience, ask themselves, Where's the story in this? And regardless of what that experience is, it could be an ex exciting experience. It could be an, a really frustrating experience where someone's angry about something. It could be a fearful experience. While they're in that moment, where's the story in that? Because that story could actually be used in the future to boost sales and really inspire a team especially those angry stories and especially those stories that have a lot of fear because a lot of times people have that as a main gut reaction. I think the worst thing that could happen to a business leader is they're going through a very frustrating situation and they're not capturing that story and documenting it because seven months after that experience takes place, they may be on the phone with a very, very important prospect that they really want to be a client. And they could share that story to close the sale. But because they haven't captured that experience, there's, they don't have that recall with it. So it's very, very important to, as you are in an experience, to document that and utilize that in the future for a story. So when you say, you know, the question is, what is the story in that? What would you tell people that you're training or people that you're working with in first, is there a story in there? So how, how, do, how should they define that? How should, what questions should they ask themselves to know if there is a story in there and what are they capturing? Because I think whenever you tell someone to write down a story, some people automatically get a good feel for, okay, this is what the story was about, but given, you know, we've just gone through the holidays, that one of ones of us who ones of us that sounds really weird, uh, who were who were lucky enough not to have COVID and be locked down, had to had to listen probably to, to a lot of stories from our relatives, and most people suck at telling stories. They have no idea what the story is about. They have no idea what really should be in there or shouldn't. So when you're telling the people you work with, you know what is the what is that the process of okay, this is what you. 
need to look for it to see if it is a story or not. And two, this is what this are the things you need to capture. You obviously can't capture every single detail, otherwise, you know, you you that's all you do all day. Fantastic question. So a lot of times people think of an opening and a closing or a beginning and an end. And I actually think that's the wrong place to start, or it's not the most effective place to start. And here's what I mean. One of the things that I did years ago while I was doing a lot of political speech writing is I was doing tons of research on how to be a better speech writer, uh, communication wise, and I was doing all different elements of, of research. And one of the things that really fascinated me is on how a lot of musicians write songs. The best songwriters on the planet do not write a song like an email. From start to finish, you know, dear Bob, I trust you're doing well. I'm writing to inform you. That's not how they really write these amazing songs. They start with a foundation. And the foundation is typically they pick up an instrument and they just start playing. There's no notes. There's no plan for the future. They focus on that melody. If the melody sounds good, they will add words to that melody and they'll build it out like a puzzle. So I mentioned that in response to your question, because often when people are in an experience, it's tough to capture the beginning and ending of that experience. That's not the foundation of a story. What I teach my clients is the foundation, not a melody like in a musician perspective, but the foundation of our story should be the emotion. The emotion is the foundation. And it's capturing that emotion. And once you have the emotion, then you start building out the story. Because all of our team members that we have, so anyone listening that is a CEO or, or they're, they're an executive of a company, you know, you have leaders that you're trying to persuade and motivate. And everyone that's listening that is trying to expand the amount of clients that they have, those individuals have emotion. Those emotions are the driving force behind their decision-making. So if you have a story that connects with that emotion, you're going to be able to get through the noise a lot more to get through to that person. So it always starts with the emotion. As you're going through the experience, ask yourself, where's the story in this and what emotion connects to this story? So you would tell someone to write down, for example, in your previous example, so anger. So if something happened that made you angry, you, you're writing down, okay, anger, and then I expect you'd write some of the basics of the of the situation, you know, who, who was involved, what, what was going on. Would you want them to try and figure out the point of the story there and then as they capture it? Or would you have them go back to it later to figure out what the story means or how it can be used strategically? Great question. I always start with the emotion. Always start with the emotion. What's the emotion? What's the emotional root of the story? And then once you have that emotional root from a topic perspective, then you can ex start expanding the story. Then you can add characters. Then you could figure out what's the ordinary world, what's the new reality. So that's a big one. Uh, that I get that from the hero's journey, uh, coined by Joseph Campbell. Uh, there's many, many stages to the hero's journey, and there, it is debatable whether it's 12 stages or 14 stages. I guess it depends on who you speak with. But the big element of that is ordinary world, new reality. So even if you're sharing a two-minute story from a presentation perspective, or if you're sharing a 20-second story on the phone with a prospect, you can utilize ordinary world, new reality. So to answer your question, yes, always start with the emotion, then start building it out, building, building it out like a puzzle. I always recommend never to actually start writing I think it, I think it can, can really restrict our creativity. I always recommend starting by speaking and then go back and write. So for me personally, it doesn't need to be complex. 
I do something as simple as I'm whipping out my phone and I use a, an app called Otter, O-T-T-E-R. It's a fantastic app. It's a transcription app. And there's a lot of trans- uh, transcription apps on the market. This one tags the best that I've found. So for instance, if I'm walking to my car after a meeting, I can just open up my phone and I could start speaking that story into the Otter app. Then I could tag it, you know, angry or excited or whatever the tag's going to be. And then in the future, when I need to pull together different stories that go into those different emotional categories, I bring it up and boom, 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 you're going to have all those different stories that come up. So what I'm finding very interesting about this is that so emotion is obviously a very, very important part of, of storytelling. There's a lot of people that will talk about emotion as one of the key components. Kendra Hall is one who famously has emotion as, or authentic emotion or, or something like that, as one of the, the four elements of, of stories in, in her book, Stories That Stick. What I find interesting, as I haven't tried it doing it that way, is I tend to start with figuring out what the point of the story was you know what is the change that the character has gone through because to me that's going to define how i'm going to use the story the 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 emotion will obviously be a part of that but you know what i'm just trying to think is okay so if i have if i have a story where i was angry or something that made me angry is that going to be more important to connect to my audience, to an audience that I guess you would want to speak to an audience that is angry about something as well? So, so that emotion is relatable, even if the point is not at all to do with the thing that's making them angry. So, so how do you square that that circle. Sure. So yeah, you always want your points to match up, you know, and, and you had mentioned audience. Audience is extremely important. We have to recognize who we're speaking with. But when I when I'm saying about the the building it out like a puzzle, that's in the creative stage. That's in the stage of really allowing your creativity to, to run wild and really start building out the documentation to capture those stories. So I always refer to it as a story bank, building out that story bank. And when you're in the creative stage, you know, you don't leave anything off the table. You're, you're trying to do everything you can to fill that story bank and those different emotional components. Once those are filled, then you can go back and you could really try to evaluate, okay, what's, what's the opening of this? What, what, how can I close this? What's the point? Where are the heroes? Where, where are the characters? And to really go back and then fine tune the story. Um, so no, you're, you're absolutely right. The audience is absolutely paramount to what message you're going to convey, especially in the political world. I, I work with a lot of politicians and there's a lot of angry audiences. It, uh, they tend to cater to the political environment. And you want to make sure that you are really sharing a point that resonates with that audience for sure. So I, re- I really appreciate you mentioning that. You just talked about the story bank. And, and, and this is a concept I think most people that work with storytelling have. I mean, we might not call it a story bank, but but you, you need to have something that serves as a story bank to, to anyone who doesn't know that is essentially your bank of stories, your collection of stories that you're going to, to use, bring out when you need them. Now, I was looking through the outline, or at least some of the major points you cover in your, in your business workshop, and story bank was very prominent there. Now, I don't know if I got the wrong idea from that outline, but the impression I got was your initial focus was in the finding of the stories and not necessarily on on the fine crafting of them and is that correct 
Is, is that a fair a, a fair um, summary of at least the initial focus of that workshop? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of just hesitancy with, with storytelling, and there's a lot of confusion and also a lot of anxiety. And when I go and I present to different companies and I'm, and I'm speaking to business leaders, you know, my goal is that when they leave those four walls, they can immediately inject the principles that we talk about into their day-to-day -day life. Some of the best compliments that I've ever received is, hey, like I started it immediately. And that's awesome because you can do really high level communication strategy. And a lot of times it's going to go over people's heads. It's not going to be applicable in their day to day life. So my big focus is to stress the importance of storytelling, go through the creative process of storytelling, and then really zone in and focus on that story bank. How do you how do you capture experience that happened in the past that you can utilize in your story bank for future growth, inspiring teams, inspiring clients? How do you understand how to capture a story in the present moment and how to create a company culture of storytelling? It's huge creating a company culture of storytelling. One of the biggest problems we're we're facing now in the United States is a staff shortage, right? And and a lot of CEOs will tell you the number one thought on their mind is how to win the talent war. The best way to win the talent war is create a company culture of storytelling, identify how powerful that mission of that organization is, and a lot more people are going to buy into that mission. But that all comes back to really the foundational principles of storytelling and, and really how do you build out the story bank and really focus on it in your day-to-day -day life? The reason I asked that question is because I've found that with a lot of people, the, the biggest obstacle is this idea that either that they don't have stories or that they're just incapable of finding the right story for the right moment. And I'm I'm starting to lean more towards this approach of breaking that bulldozing through that by having people find 10 stories or 20 stories with some simple exercises and then say, see, you, you've got a ton of stories. Now we, now we can tweak that to find more specific stories, but we have them. Let's try and get business points out of them. If you've done that, you hopefully have now seen in action how you go from, I've no idea what this thing is and how I would possibly use it to, oh, here, 10 stories. This is how I could use them. And then you can chase down the ones that are more specific to, to the work you're, you're doing. But you've, in a sense, if you've done your job where I was a trainer there, you've now got a believer. Whereas before people had no real idea what the hell this story thing was or that they could ever do it. I think that was, um, that, and that is an approach that I've seen some people take. Whereas I've seen a lot of people take a, a very crafting and telling approach to, to teaching storytelling. And I find that sometimes you do that and people go back to the same place of, but I don't know which stories I should be telling. Give me one, I can make it a little better because now you taught me all these things, but I, I, I still don't have the stories. So where do I go from here? So that's why... That's why I asked that question. Sure. It's a great point. Something else, and, and then I'll move away from the, the basic stuff into the into the politics stuff that I really want to get into. But I, I seen one of your, uh, like a testimonial you got, and the person said that what you were very good at was condensing large concepts into small, powerful stories. To some degree, that is a very good definition of what 
storytelling is when used at its best. But do you have any particular approach to teaching people how to do that? Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times our, our our heads get in the way. And I think that's the biggest the biggest danger of storytelling is we're we're not telling enough stories. We're not we're not cutting through that noise of telling enough stories. And I think people they overcomplicate storytelling. I'm really on a mission to to simplify that process. So what I work with on with, with people is often we focus on the negative potential outcome of that story, not the task at hand. So one of the most fascinating interviews I heard many, many moons ago, it was a, a, an interview from actually decades ago, Michael Jordan was giving this interview and someone asked him, how are you able to, to play under such intense pressure? And he, he was so calm, cool, and collected as he would do some of these, these shots. And he said, I focus on the task, never the negative potential outcome. I think a lot of times when people are sharing a story, they're focusing on that negative outcome. What will people think of me? Will people be offended? Will my message get through? Will I look stupid? That's focusing on the negative potential outcome. It's when you focus on the task, and in Michael Jordan's case, the task of just throwing a basketball, our task is just speaking. And oftentimes when I hear people talk, even if they are have huge name ID, they have massive audiences, they still get in their head so much when it comes to this story. They're, they're, they're trying to have this riveting story, this razzle and dazzle story, and they, they're in their head too much. So I really think when we share a message from our heart and we're really focusing on that task, that's what's going to simplify that process. And it's going to alleviate anxiety and it's actually going to boost our excitement. So that's a big piece of it. Another piece is I do think that we, our, our best stories are trapped in our subconscious minds. We don't have instant recall with experiences. And one of the ways to get them out, back to your point, Francisco, is to just start focusing on different points and just start rattling off all these different stories. And then you can go back and you can, you can do all the different that you had mentioned crafting a certain story. There is different structures that you can put into place, but it's really focusing on the task and not that negative potential outcome. All right. So let's get into the, into the meteor stuff. One other testimonial you had, and I'm, I'm taking that since you left that as a testimonial, you don't mind too much how we described you. You said you were uh, I don't know if master was the word, but it says that you were an expert at the dark arts of communication. And 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 I've seen people talk about storytelling as as a dangerous thing. I remember talking to AJ Minai and and he and I, I had this idea that I thought it would be great for children to get a bit more of practice identifying stories, telling stories. And and he said, I'm, I'm not so sure because you know storytelling can be a very dangerous thing or can be used in a, in a in a problematic way. And I don't think in any field of human communication this is more true than than in politics. So in the work you do with with politicians, so let's just start small. So what are some of the most basic ways? I mean, and I don't I don't necessarily want to get into campaign messaging as such because i think that's a that's a much broader field than than we probably have time to to go into detail but like when you're teaching someone to become a better communicator and they're in politics what types of stories are you encouraging them to share and what are the moments that you find that those stories are more effective to be shared because i, I don't Obama being a, a very clear exception, but it's not 
the first thing that comes to mind when we hear most politicians is like, oh, they're great storytellers. We, we don't, I don't think we see that as much. Sure. So first to, to back up a, a step and, and just echo your point, storytelling can be dangerous if it falls into the wrong hands. And that just speaks to the power of storytelling. If you have an individual that is extremely, extremely manipulative, storytelling could be very dangerous because it's so powerful. It's so effective. One of the things that I, I have my clients promise me is that they will use it for good because once they truly grab a hold of the concepts, they could do major damage. They could manipulate people. They could uh, stiff arm and strong arm people to do different things they may not want to do because they're really playing on people's emotions and their and human psychology. So yeah, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. It just really speaks to the power of it. Also, I call uh, politics the lion's den of communication. Because if you don't know what you're doing, you're literally going to get ripped to shreds. You're dealing with audiences that are hostile, they're toxic, they're angry, they're, they're very, emotions are running high, and you really need to be able to handle that. So one of the things that I do is I'm very rough when I when it when it comes to my political clients because the <laughs> the political climate is not going to be easy on them especially when I do debate prep and that is my specialty is debate prep. So what I'll do is I will pull every single question under the sun that will come in the days ahead. So I, I understand what culturally is happening right now. What's on the forefront of people's minds? Uh, what are reporters asking of politicians? What are people asking of their representation? And then I will document all those different questions. And then it all goes back to the story bank. We pull out different emotions and we link the emotions to the different questions. So this came about when I was when I was first starting out several years ago, and I was tasked with coaching multiple politicians on how to shine for the camera. So think, you know, press conferences, uh, town halls, debate prep, stuff like that. And I pulled every single question that would come up and I realized that there were 600 potential questions. So to get someone to study and come up with a masterful response for 600 questions in, in a matter of days, it's not going to happen. So then you start studying patterns in the questions. And one of the things that continued to come up was that emotional piece. And then you identify what are the emotions that are really the root of those questions and, and really capturing a story that speaks to that emotion. So when it comes up and someone's, you know, charged up and they're asking that emotion, they may be saying words. But our initial response shouldn't be, I hear words, what kind of words can I say to these words? The initial response should be, I hear what's being asked, what is the emotional root attached to that question? And do I have a story that I could share in my story bank that really connects with that emotion? And that's what I work with uh, politicians on a lot, especially if they're going to go into these very hostile speaking environments. We will spend a great deal of time making sure that they understand their story bank inside and out. Debate is an interesting one because one of the the most common limitations of of a debate is that you have you have very little time to answer any questions. I, I, I forget what exactly the, the the typical time is, but but it's two minutes usually, some somewhere two three minutes, isn't it? Uh, at least in the presidential debates that I see. It depends on the bait. Yeah, it really depends on the bait. Sometimes it's 30 seconds, sometimes it's a minute, sometimes it is two minutes. Okay, so in that type of environment where, where you can just ramble on, 
how much would you say that using an actual story, not, okay, fine, this is someone is angry, this is my my answer for someone who's angry, but an actual story with characters at the beginning, middle, and end, and, and a point and all of that, H how much can you can you do that in a debate? Because we tend to see that, I remember, I'm remembering now Kamala Harris had a story about about being on the on, on a bus in one of her last debates, and that that story got a lot of airtime. But I think she had, and she I think she was trying that a fair a fair bit. I think she tried another two or three during it. But how much can someone really do that? And and how small can do those stories need to be for them to be able to pull that off in 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 very limited time? Great question and point. So the the debate you're referring to was by far her strongest debate because she used story, which is actually interesting. The 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 firm that really prepped her for that is a firm that that's down the street from my sister, which I, I just found really, really interesting. So yeah, it's 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 absolutely critical. I, I recommend storytelling all the time. And here's why. If you're in a debate setting and really any setting, if you're presenting to a team of people, so if you're a CEO and you're presenting to your, your staff, if you are in a sales meeting and you're presenting to a bunch of prospects that you're really trying to turn into clients, you can figuratively bring someone up on stage with you through story and then vicariously speak through them. What that does is it shields you from debate. And I do this all the time. And I recommend that my clients do it as well. And there's a, there's a power in that. So if they're asked a question and they say, actually, you know, 13, there's a 13% chance of blah, 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 of whatever the case may be. That's a debatable comment. Someone can, can blow holes to the comment saying, no, it's not really 13%. It's actually more like 25%. Your numbers are off. And then they're going to go back and forth. Or I can again, figuratively bring someone up on stage with me and say, I just got done talking to John and John, and then go into a story that really speaks to the point of that question or that topic, that candidate, that, uh, that opponent candidate is going to have a really tough time messing with that story because that's that story. It's very, very difficult to argue and debate stories. That's the power of that. Two politicians in the United States that I immediately think of that were masterful at this was John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. They did this all the time, all the time. And they're known as masterful communicators because they constantly were sharing stories that shielded them from debate. So to answer your question, it's absolutely paramount to the success of a debate to focus on those stories. So this idea of, you know, someone is trying to give you data, which some people could argue is a more accurate representation of a problem or the world. And we are responding with an anecdote or a story, which is only true as far as that particular person goes. I think that's the type of thing that a lot of people could could take an issue with because, because it can be misleading, right? Which makes me think about the difference in communication between people more identified with the left or in the US, you know, the Democrats and the left and right get very confusing outside of, even in the US, it gets confusing to be honest. But the, you know, I, I talk to people about that. It's like, no one in the US is left. Like there's not left. There's like center right and like very far right. There's no, like no one is remotely left in the US. But anyway, so when you think about left and right or, or Democrats and, and Republicans and you, first of all, do you work with both sides of the aisle? 
Great question. I do because my mission is to focus on actual problem solution. I'm very solution oriented. So I have work with both sides. Okay. So that being the case, do you notice differences between between how, their natural communication styles or or how how willing or not they are to try certain things or what's their default mode because from the outside and and, and i've had i've had people on the on the podcast that we talked about that a lot particularly randy olson and and he was talking about how one could argue that the the the, the right or the republicans are way better communicators um, if you don't want to take it an ethical view of it but essentially they're saying is they the, the they are much more comfortable with doing the things that work and not necessarily the things that are quote unquote right when it comes to communication so has that been your experience do you find that some are easier or eager more eager students than than the others i have worked with multiple politicians on on both sides that are very eager so maybe i just have eager clients but it really goes back to that that story uh, so we're talking right and left and you know is it is it really based in reality is it embellished? And I, I, I bring it back to several years ago, I witnessed a horrific accident. I was driving down the road and a massive SUV crashed into a car and it was absolutely devastating. I was right behind the car. The car flipped. It almost hit my car. And I remember flying off the road and I waited there until the police came. And what was interesting was what I shared with that police officer was radically different than the individual, the witness on the other side of that road. So there was someone on the other side watching this all unfold. What I saw is the person in front of me's head was down and she was texting. That's what I saw. That's not what the person on the other side of the road saw. The other person on, on the other side of the road saw the driver that this individual hit was being reckless and the, and the car was going back and forth. I didn't see that. But the story that I shared was truthful, it was honest, and it was what happened based on what I saw. And likewise, so often when it comes in, in the political arena, what's being shared on both sides of the, the, the spectrum they both might be right and they both might be true. They're just sharing different pieces of that angle based on the story to convince and persuade the audience that their story is correct. So oftentimes when we get into, is it real? Is it not real? It, it both could be real. And, and it depends on how it's spun and the story is crafted. But you bring up a really good point. Um, but to, to answer your question about, about who's, who's more willing, there's a lot of willing politicians that really want to focus on communication because they, they, they recognize the importance of it. Well, it, it's the whole game, isn't it? I mean, because let's be honest, it's, it's not as if... Even if you if you were judging politicians that had you know elected representatives by their achievements, it's not as if electors get a a very clear record of these are all the projects that were proposed by this representative. This is what they voted on. This is what they had promised before, and this is what they managed to achieve. Um, you know, so this is their score as a politician. This is not how it works. I, I, I'm aware of initiatives where someone did something like that, and, and it, 
unfortunately it's never been it's never been picked up by the larger po political world understandably so the politicians would probably not be overly happy with that it's all messaging you know to getting elected is all messaging getting re-elected is probably way more messaging than it is well we've achieved these things so now let's you know vote for me again because i did exactly what i said i would one of the things we've seen a lot in recent years and this has started probably to get stronger around the Brexit time is that some people perhaps were a bit looser with their use of, of truth and, and, and how they, they massa massage the narrative that they were trying to sell. And that's proven to be incredibly successful. All of these big surprises we had in politics in the last few years, and that's Brexit, it's Trump, it's in my back home country, Brazil, where, where a very far right guy got elected. It, it all came down to messaging and so, <laughs> communication. So I think that it's difficult to argue that any politician would ever get anywhere or stay there, even if somehow they got there, if their communication wasn't wasn't at least very competent. Not to say not to say the most the strongest thing in their arsenal, because I mean, lots of them are not the sharpest knife. In the, in the two fucks, or at least they're not when it comes to their political competence of getting things done. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point. So and I, I'm not going to share any names because I, I don't want to belittle any person, but there was a year that I was working with um, two politicians regularly in the same week. So I there, there was there was many years where I had you know X, Y, and Z politicians I was working with, and I would focus on all right this week I'm going to work with such and such, and I set reoccurring meetings up where I'm I'm regularly meeting with them. And what was interesting is in this given year there were these two individuals that I was working with consistently on this one week of every month, and I did that for about two years. One of the individuals had a doctorate in political science and was unbelievably savvy from an educational perspective, academic perspective. I mean, he was an absolute whiz when it came to sound public policy. I mean, he could write books on different elements of government. Unbelievably intelligent human being. The other individual got his GED. Now, for anyone listening that's not familiar with the GED, it means that you did not pass high school in the United States. So not only do you not have a college degree, you did not get through high school and you had to go back and do different courses to basically say it's an equivalent of a high school education. So you have one individual that has a doctorate who's unbelievably intelligent, actually probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever worked with. And then you have another individual that is not book smart, does not have any kind of accolades in academia. And the individual that has GED was a master communicator. I mean, we worked on stuff together where he could get up there and give an amazing speech, incredibly infused with storytelling. The other individual, it, it was like pulling teeth and he really struggled to communicate and, and he was doing a lot behind the scenes, but people don't see you behind your desk. They don't see the bills that you're writing behind your desk. They see you out on the campaign stump, giving these talks, sharing these stories. And the same is true in the business world. If you're a CEO, your team doesn't see all the ins and outs of what you do. They don't see you behind your desk and say, great job. Thank you so much for doing this for us. Thank you so much for all you. They don't see that. 
they see how you connect and communicate with them. So communication is one of the most important things anyone can focus in on on their life. Um, It transcends every element of our lives, whether it's business or family, you know, how we communicate with our spouse, how we communicate with our children is very, very important. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. You said before that you want your clients to promise you that they will use some of the, you know, the stuff you're teaching them for good. But I, I struggle to think that, I mean, I don't know how much you follow these people's careers after you've worked in, with them, if, you've not, if you're not working with them regularly. But I can only imagine that it must have happened where you worked with someone, you've made them a better communicator, which means in essence, you've made them a better politician or at least a better politician that is able to get a job and stick with that job. It must have happened sometimes that the projects that they are putting their effort towards are not necessarily the things that you would, you would personally vote for or support. Is there not a part of you that it's thinking like, I'm not sure I want this guy to be more persuasive or this person to be more persuasive. Like I know some of these politics, I'm not sure I really should <laughs> should give them better weapons than than what they've currently got. <laughs> yeah, the, the political world is very, very complex. I mean, especially in the United States. So that that goes there, there it's a it's a pretty long uh, conversation. I'll try to give you the, the nuts and bolts of it. So for anyone listening uh, that has has seen the presidential elections in the United States, due to super PACs, each candidate's raising upwards of a billion dollars. Then you have congressional races. So you have three billion US dollars going into attack ads in major media markets in the United States. So you have a it's it, it's a messaging nightmare at times. It's it's a tightrope and there's a lot of strategy that goes into that messaging. Um, so to answer your question, I mean, it's it's so complex that you do need different politicians that believe different things for, for each party that you can come to a consensus when it comes to votes. I did a lot of work with the, 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 the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania, just to give people an idea on that. Every single session, which is two years, there was 4,500 bills that flowed through the House, 4,500 bills. A lot of these bills are very thick. We're talking upwards of 100 pages. And 90% of those bills would die in committee, so they wouldn't actually get on the House floor for a vote. But just to give people an an understanding of just how complex it is, 4,500 bills in two years, that's a lot of legislation. So there's a lot that goes into voting for something just to share a story or voting for something just to give a speech here to rally a certain base. Um, so there's a lot of that go- that goes on. So it's, it's really understanding, you know, why are they doing these different moves for that specific reason to get to the ultimate goal, which is, is effective policy, sound public policy, and actually moving the community forward. That sounds like a remarkably political answer. <laughs> there you go. You basically said it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very complicated. Right. So let me let me just I'll I'll let you slide on that one. But let me ask you something different, which is I didn't actually have on my list of questions, but I this question came into my mind by looking at your haircut. Now, for anyone that is not uh, watching this, we we have a slight contrast here. Whereas in I I've somehow 
grown a, a, a buffoonish hair over the holidays and uh, there, there's a bit of wildness to it or at least this hd camera that i've just got on my computer is, is showing a lot more reality than i'm used to seeing here whereas you have hair that a politician could sport no problem it's very neat that doesn't seem to be anything out of place and i've seen your your public image is often you wearing a suit and tie which is, you know, it, like you could easily pass for a politician. And I know you have done that work before you did this work, at least you work for politicians. Now, one of the things that people often talk about storytelling is how you should show vulnerability and you should show who you really are and all of that stuff. But politicians have this super tailored image and, and it's usually one of the things that tends to make people mistrust them a little less than perhaps they would anyway, which is they don't feel very real. Like people don't normally dress that way every day. They don't, you know, they're not as polished in their looks. They're not as polished in the way they speak. So when you have this idea, one, you want stories to be vulnerable to a certain extent, to be authentic, to so they relate to people, but you have the, the least authentic, relatable people in the world telling that those stories. <laughs> Do you have the stories push that a little more to compensate for the rest? Or because they're politicians and because they're working under certain constraints, you don't think that's necessarily a good idea. I didn't think we were going to get to haircuts. I, I love it. It's awesome. This, this conversation is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my hair seems to be a constant topic of conversation on social media. There you go. Yeah, it's great hair. I get complimented on it. So, you know, when, I, when I'm on camera, I'm always paying attention if I'm living up to my audience's expectation. <laughs> That's fantastic. So the reason for the image that I'm, I'm constantly sharing is really based on my audience now. So I do work with politicians to this day. It's not as labor intensive of what it was several years ago. So several years ago, I was doing a lot of speech writing, a lot of political messaging strategy. Uh, it was very, very intensive. And it, it took up probably about 90% of my time. Now it's completely flipped where 90% of my time I'm working with CEOs and executives and sales teams and only 10% of my time I'm working with politicians one-on-one -on -one debate prep and stuff like that. So it's really my ideal client avatar, if you will. So my clients are primarily 45 to 65 years of age and they're CEOs of medium-sized companies. So the reason for the image that you're probably referring to what you've seen on, on LinkedIn, it's my social media platform platform of choice. Uh, LinkedIn was an absolute game changer for me. I, I started getting active, I believe it was September of 2019. And I know that because once I figured the platform out, I mean, business started coming in left and right, and it was, it was fantastic. So the image that I'm constantly sharing is, it really speaks to my ideal client. Uh, and as you will recognize, I mean, I'm very vulnerable on that platform. Vulnerability, it, it, it really helps with engagement. It's connecting with people. It's figuring out what kind of challenges do they have and connecting with them. So that's the reason for the, for the image. Uh, going back to your point regarding politicians or even CEOs, vulnerability is huge. I mean, vulnerability is going to get you more buy-in. It's, it's sharing people that, hey, you know, you messed up here and then you learned from it and then you're going to go forward. In the political world, there's not a lot of people saying, I messed up, but there's a way to say it where you've learned something. You, you have a different way of thinking about something and also using someone that you can pull on stage, again, figuratively learning from that person. They're the hero of your story. The voter's the hero of your story. The person supporting you is the hero of your story. And the same is true when it comes to the business world. So that's the reason for 
the the identity management, if you will. Yes, when you say that your your image is, is tailored for your audience on LinkedIn, it it makes me wonder if all this sketch comedy videos that I put out on LinkedIn where I, I dress as you know the, the guy from Dirty Dancing or occasionally don't wear anything at all might be slightly problematic. Or or if I attract an audience, what is the problem with this audience that they are attracted to this stuff? But since you mentioned LinkedIn, I, I will, I will ask that as as my final question, which is and this is not this is not a gotcha question. I told you there wouldn't be any, but but I do want to press you on on your LinkedIn approach and strategy a little bit because the one thing I I it's kind of a pet peeve of mine is that a lot of people talk about storytelling on LinkedIn or or they they mention the word or they will have storyteller or they'll have something to do with story or storytelling in their in their profile in their headline and all of that. Now with with a lot of them I I know full well that they they do the job and they've been doing the job for a long time successfully as far as I can tell. But with with some of them and and I think to some to a small extent you you fall into that bracket what I don't see more is lots of stories being told. I wanted to make sure I wasn't I wasn't unfairly asking that question, so I just went through like some of the last posts from from the last two or three weeks. And obviously, there's lots of personal stuff being shared. There's a, there's a lot of as you said, vulnerable things being shared. Not a lot of it I found is in the shape of of a story, like a very typical story. Now, is there a particular reason why you just chose not to do that on LinkedIn? Did you used to do it and found that on LinkedIn it didn't work as well for you, or or it's not something you're not as strategic about it on LinkedIn as you are with the communication you you teach in your clients? Yeah, so I, I definitely mix up my my LinkedIn strategy. So to give people an idea of just my I guess relationship, if you will, with with LinkedIn. So last year I posted 847 times on LinkedIn. So this year I'm not even going to come close to that. I've revamped my strategy. So so now I'm counting. So that okay, Probably about three posts a day. I'm posting about one time a day right now, and it's it's a mix between video, between image, between story, between. So I'm 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 all over the place when it comes to that because the last thing you want to do is have your audience think, oh, I've seen this before, or oh, I've heard this before. So it's really good to mix up the stories that I'm very vulnerable in with what I share get a lot of engagement. So the the power of LinkedIn to me is getting people to your profile and then prompting them what to do once they land on your profile. So for anyone listening that actually invests ad dollars from a business perspective, exposure is huge. I mean, getting eyeballs on what you do is people pay a lot for that. That's that's the reason why Super Bowl commercials are so stinking expensive. We have a Super Bowl uh, coming up in, here in the United States. It's extremely expensive because a lot of people are viewing that. So the reason why I'm posting stories and I'm posting videos and I'm posting images, the whole point of it is one to offer value and build an audience because a bigger audience equates to more business. And I can have, you know, I can show you different elements of that, that, hey, if I post this amount of time, I'm going to get X amount of business. And I figured out that formula, but really it's getting people back to my profile to start a discovery call with me, to bring me in for a workshop, to bring me in for consulting and coaching. Um, so I, I get millions and millions and millions of views on my, my LinkedIn uh, content. And I get a lot of people that are my ideal clients to actually go to my profile and see the stories that I post, see the, 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 
what why I spend so much time on LinkedIn in the first place. Because I'm sure a lot of people are, are listening thinking, wow, that's a lot of posts. That's a ton of content. And it is. But the amount that it has yielded me in business, it has been unbelievable. So I highly, highly recommend people really figure out the, the, the LinkedIn platform for sure. So you would think that mixing it up or you found that mixing it up works so well for you because I don't think that that's the approach most people take. And, and I know of a, a number of people who have been vastly more successful than, than I have been on LinkedIn and I've done, I've done well. And most of them, you can always tell there's like two or three types of posts. And I've not seen that many people that do the high volume approach. I, I can think of a couple that every time I open LinkedIn, there's a post on top there. But I think most people I speak to tend to do, you know, three, three to five a week seems to be the, the, the norm. But then again, I think, you know, it's whatever works, right? I don't think there is a, there is a set formula for anyone. And I've, I've spoken to people and I've tried, like, I've tried to do a ton more video before and it just burns me out because the type of video I do is not like selfie video, shoot it in three minutes and post. Mine is, you know, stories and characters and some editing and stuff. There's like, there's just no way you can keep that up. Whereas I know people that only do that and found systems to make that work. So I guess there is no one way to do it. For sure. G good point. Yeah, you you got to figure out what, what your audience is, who they are, what they like. I'm, I'm revamping my entire social media strategy. Um, I, I set the plan in place for this year. I'm going to be posting about once a day. So it really depends on your audience. But yeah, I, I really have found that mixing it up between image and video and text and poll, it, it's a good way to build out that audience in addition to people not thinking, oh, I've seen this before. Oh, I've heard this before. Because if they think that what you're posting again, that they've seen and it's becoming stale and it's going to become really robotic. So I really like to keep that fresh. Yeah, I think my, my, my potential issue is that once I've gotten naked on LinkedIn, I, I'm not sure how, how more I can push that. Like I've, I've taken the crazy to its natural conclusion, natural to me, perhaps. I don't know, like that, that route has been exhausted. Like I can't keep doing that or they will ban me. There you go. Yeah, you don't want to get banned. <laughs> so I need to, I need to think of, yes, my sketch, my sketch comedy videos need to take a slightly different direction than, than they've taken. I've, I've hit a cul-de-sac. Matt, if people want to find out more about the stuff you do, is mattzon.com the best place to go? Yeah, so they could check me out at mattzon.com. That's my website. Also connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on LinkedIn, whatever you prefer. I'm, I'm constantly posting content that's valuable to not only politicians, but specifically business leaders. I'm really focused on CEOs and executives and helping them create a company culture of storytelling. Perfect. Well, it's it's taken us a bit of time, but I'm, I'm glad we finally managed to do this. Thank you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves. And until next time. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It's very easy. You open the app and find this show. Then scroll down a little, and when you see the stars, tap. I'd really appreciate it, and it does help other people find us. And if you'd like to get in touch or find out more about what I do, reach out to me on LinkedIn or visit my website, storypowers.com.